Today, redistricting, underground abortion, and Matt Gates on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Stay tuned. Hey, everybody. I'm Vince Colonnais alongside the excellent Jason Nichols. So great to have you back with us on another episode of Vince and Jason Save the Nation. If you haven't done it yet, please make sure to like and subscribe anywhere you can find this podcast, including and especially in its video form on the Daily Caller YouTube channel. That makes sure that more people get to see the conversations that Jason and I are having today on a Wednesday. Jason Nichols, what do you have in mind? So we're about that time where we're going to start redistricting across the nation. And there is a question that Republicans have right now where they're talking about how to deal with blue cities in red states. Now, some people believe that they should split up these blue cities and other people believe that they should keep them whole because splitting them up could create more Democratic districts. My issue, of course, is the fact that we have partisan redistricting altogether. Yes. So I wanted to get your position on that and what should be done about it. Yeah, partisan redistricting is uh, typical and it's done whenever the party who has control of the state legislature can take advantage of those levers in order to district uh, its state to its advantage. I know you live in Maryland. If you look at Maryland, the way that it's districted right now is to the advantage dramatically of Democrats. It looks like an inkblot test. There's, there's completely disparate communities that are connected to one another, and that's designed to entrench Democrat power. And that's, that's true in uh, states around the country, and both political parties have done this through the years. And every so often when they're out of power, uh, they become very interested in independent uh, districts and, and nonpartisan uh, redistricting. It's, it's, it's a fight that's going to continue in the United States. But as a, if I had to sort of contemplate how you should draw a district, my presumption would be it's based on, first of all, the number of members of Congress, the number of districts you have to have, obviously. And then additionally, that district should be drawn to actually encompass a real community with typical shared interests. So yes, if it's, a, if it's a city and it should be five different congressional districts, it should be parts of that city that are whole communities rather than using parts of the city in order to defray the rural votes because there's bigger population in the city. You, you see what I'm saying? Like it doesn't, yeah, it, I, it doesn't I, make sense to disconnect, to disenfranchise um, communities by virtue of giving them a representative who doesn't actually represent them and their interests. So what, what, see, that's kind of questionable for me because I wonder what are exactly our shared interests when we're talking about, so for example, I live in the seventh district in uh, the state of Maryland and there's my suburban middle-class, maybe even upper middle-class community. Right. And then there's West Baltimore, which is also in the same district. Yes. I think that there are shared interests. And I also think that it's, it's not necessarily politically advantageous to separate and give, say, have a wealthy district where only wealthy people's interests are being represented in Congress. That actually kind of scares me. I actually think that we should have mixed income districts, some districts that are suburban and uh, and urban, you know, all together, maybe even a little bit, a sprinkle of rural people all in the same district. Uh, I think that that's actually a good thing. I actually think that having these voices all come together to pick a representative can be good for uh, that particular district. 
I think sometimes when we siphon them off, and again, um, I think it is true, certainly that Democrats have done uh, their partisan uh, redistricting. We could even call it in some cases gerrymandering. I think also Republicans have done it. Yes. And a lot of times blue, uh, whether people like it or not, blue is a proxy for black. It's a proxy for race, like what's going on in Kentucky right now, where they're trying to, where they're thinking about splitting up, uh, they're thinking about splitting up Louisville, which is largely black um, and trying to mix it in with a lot of the other areas. I'm not necessarily, I, you know, I, I'm kind of on the fence about it, but depending on how it's done, I think mixing some of these communities up, I, I don't necessarily think that that is inherently a bad thing. Um, I don't want a bunch of wealthy people to have wealthy uh, interests in Congress because they don't have a mixed district. Well, if, if it's a large enough population of people to justify having a single member of Congress, their wealth shouldn't dictate whether or not that they are adequately represented. It's really the number of people. I mean, it's the House of Representatives is a population-based game. And it doesn't make sense, actually, that, that the, your middle class to wealthy area of Maryland is connected to, did you say West Baltimore? Um, yeah. It's connected to West Baltimore because obviously the needs of West Baltimore are distinct and unique. Yes. Do you have shared interests? Obviously, as Americans, you do. As Marylanders, you do. And that's why you have different levels at which you vote together, including statewide elections, naturally, and then natural national elections where your federal interests are fulfilled outside of uh, for, for in terms of the president of the United States and the vice president of the United States. Um, but then when it comes to like what it looks like in your community, your zoning laws are completely different, whether or not you'll have bike lanes around there, uh, what kind of federal support that that member of Congress might secure for your community. All of your needs are, are separate and distinct and unique, and they should be treated that way so that you have somebody that you can get in touch with who has your interests at heart and isn't trying to wrestle with a completely different community all the way across the state. Well, they have, uh, we have local representatives for, for those topics. We have, Baltimore has their mayor that yes. uh, deals with all different sides of the community. Uh, they have city council people who will be specifically for certain neighborhoods. And that's, you know, necessary. That's pretty much how they, we have a county executive and You're right. all those kinds of things. And that's how we get our representation locally and even you know in your particular community where i live we have our own representative um that goes to the county council or whatever yeah so uh, i don't think people feel underrepresented and as a matter of fact you know personally uh i don't think anyone in this community or i won't say anyone but most people in this community feel very well represented by because west baltimore because of the population dominates um, you know, the district. And so they've sent Elijah Cummings, or they sent Elijah Cummings for a long time. They sent Kwesi and Fume now to Congress. Uh, it hasn't been some suburban guy from our neighborhood. And I actually think that that's a good thing. And I don't think anybody in this community has an issue with that. We generally vote with West Baltimore. So obviously, there are some shared interests there and and you know people don't have this big issue and there's not a big divide in terms of voting i believe kwesi and fume who is a troubled candidate he's not like he was not squeaky clean if you go back into his history he won his election by 88 points you know uh against kimberly Klasik, who maybe we'll have on the show at some point uh i like kimberly as a person 
don't know about her as a politician, but as a person, uh, she's a really nice person, but her niceness did not win over either West Baltimore or uh, the county that I live in. So mm -hmm. I actually think that they're based on the voting patterns. People do have shared interests. Well, sure. If you all, if you're together. Yeah. I mean, sure. If you're voting for Democrats, if you want to see a Democrat elected, then chances are you're perfectly content with that arrangement. Um, you know, Maryland has only one Republican member of Congress. Uh, and that is uh, no small one huge reason for that is the way that Maryland is drawn. So the Republican voters are spread out throughout blue districts and as a result um, have less Republican representation in Congress. So all, my, my only point is that like uh, that a district should make sense so that you should be able to have some sense of a cohesive community, whether it's by zip codes or some other like reasonable way to assess how to draw a district. And right now what you have across the country, not just in Maryland, so many states that are drawn based on who was in power at the turn of that decade. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the, there was a big push that came from Democrats after the 2010 elections because um, Republicans won so many state legislatures and succeeded and prevailed so much in 2010 that, um, that Democrats began to push for these independent commissions they, uh, where, where they draw the lines. And that makes sense. If you're out of power and you can't control drawing the lines, then you're going to push for uh, independent commissions to do that. And now there's a big appetite among Democrats, uh, that is Democrat leaders, to do the independent commission thing. I've noticed of late that uh, there's an, an interesting side effect of that. I think Politico wrote about it, is that there are some Democrats who are now regretting that they push so hard for independent commissions because you do have places where Democrats um, are in control and are having trouble putting that cat you know, back into the bag because um, like in Virginia, for instance, Democrats are running the entire state legislature, but right now they're in the midst of continuing with an independent commission to redraw the state lines. And, um, you know, there's been some opposition among Democrats to that, not just among those Democrats who run the state legislatures, but the Congressional Black Caucus in particular was um, not pleased with HR1, which is that gigantic voting package that Nancy Pelosi has been pushing this year. Um, establishing independent commissions nationwide to redraw all of the districts uh, because Congressional Black Caucus members fearful that that meant that they could lose their seats because their districts would be drawn in such a way as to for them, they would lose their their political advantage. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of actual debate going on, I think, on both sides of the aisle on, on uh, how to actually redraw these lines. And that makes sense. It, it happens every 10 years. Yeah, no, I mean, it's an imperfect system. I actually think, um, I, I guess I'm more on the side of Nancy Pelosi here. Uh, that doesn't always happen, let me just say. But I, I think I'm actually more on her side here that we need to somehow um, take away the partisan element. And, you know, in the case of Republicans, like I said, partisan is also a proxy for race. So I think that a lot of times these congressional black Democrats should actually think about that, that when, you know, every 10 years when, they, when we start redistricting, they're looking at a way to to eat into, uh, you know, black Democratic uh, districts. And I, I think that it's better to have this be a nonpartisan uh, process. And the other thing is uh, Mitch McConnell has actually come out and said that he is against eating into that district in Louisville and splitting it into three, as opposed to one big blue Demo uh, Democratic uh, 
district. And the reason is because not only because it, it could create three democratic districts, um, it, the, or, or two out of three or something like that and, and actually uh, add to uh, the democratic representation in Congress. Um, it's also because he realizes that a lot of this will get tied up in court. Um, and this is, you know, where it just becomes this kind of endless bickering and no one ever gets anywhere because it's just lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit yeah. um, by, by um, you know, different nonprofit entities suing on behalf of certain constituents. So, my so to me, if you, the way you take that out of it, the way you take the judicial element out of it is say, look, this is going to be a process that we go through every 10 years yeah. that is taking the partisan element out of it. And if we see partisanship or, you know, certainly racial gerrymandering or anything else uh, in it, then we can enter the, the judicial element. In. Unfortunately, so long as partisans control the system, which is obviously what we have, there will be partisan outcomes. So my presumption in, in all of this is never believe any politician who argues that they're doing this merely on the basis of principle. And instead, they're looking for partisan advantage, right? Uh, so that's that is unsurprising to me. Of course, you know Mitch McConnell wouldn't want to blow Louisville up into three Democrat reliable Democrat districts. Of course, uh, Republicans wouldn't want to break California up into separate states. And there was a push at one point to make three separate states out of California. That would result in at least uh, four Democrat senators, potentially two Republican senators out of Southern California, San Diego South. Um, I mean, it's all all these ideas adding. Puerto Rico is a state, adding Washington, D.C. is a state. So there's so many principled arguments that are made, and they're all poppycock. It's all just about, will we derive partisan advantage out of this move? Uh, that's well, the whole, first place to go. Uh, I don't know. I, I think splitting a state up, uh, I don't know that there's any reason to do that, because if we split up uh, California, we could split up Florida, we could split up Texas, we yes. could split up a lot of these big, we can set up New York for that matter and make New York City its own state. I think that that's, you know, I don't see a reason to do that. Democrats would never go for that. Right, and, and I, I don't think it's necessary. But Puerto Rico and Washington DC being a state is about representation. And we know one of the fundamental elements of our country is no uh, taxation without representation. And you right. have people who are paying federal taxes in Puerto Rico, not getting good services, not getting equal uh, things in, in a lot of cases, and also not getting representation in Congress. Well, wait, so wait a I, sec. Wait, wait a sec. On Puerto Rico, though, they do not pay federal income tax. Okay, but so, in Washington D.C., do you? Pay? Yes, they do. Okay. Yes, now, they do. Now, now in Puerto Rico, we can talk about a lot of ways that the Jones Act and everything that you that people think that they get from citizenship are actually uh, you know, and ways in which uh, Puerto Rican sovereignty or, or any kind of representation is taken from them. So uh, since you said they don't pay federal income taxes, right? there are other ways in which they are taxed. So uh, number one, we know, and this is one of the big criticisms I had of the Obama administration. Number one, once they had the issues with their um, with their financial system, they set in motion something called Promesa, which is uh, I'm going to mess up the acronym, but uh, that basically took all sovereignty from 
Puerto Rican officials. Their financial decisions were made by an outside board determined by the US federal government. They are not allowed to uh, have shipping from other countries. It all has to come from the United States. There are lots of ways in which this makes products more expensive for the Puerto Rican consumer, which again, turns into a federal tax. Now, I think uh, there is broad opposition, right, in Puerto Rico. I don't know what the numbers are. There's broad opposition to the Jones Act, correct? Um, yeah, I mean, so there's there's opposition. So there, there are three positions in Puerto Rico. One is starting to disappear. The three positions, of course, one is statehood. Yes, Other, which is very, very contentious in Puerto Rico. Yeah, one is independence. And the other is to remain uh, a, essentially a colony or a territory right. and, of the United States. That third option is kind of disappearing. People are saying, look, we either have to poop or get off the pot, one or the other. And I think um, most people are turning, uh, in the last couple referendum, uh, they've had is ref- referendums or is referendum <laughs> a plural? Let's go with referendi. Let's just make one referendi. up. Okay. Um, <laughs> in the last couple of those, yes, uh, people have chosen statehood, but some people boycotted a couple of those decisions. Big time. Very few voters even participated in, in that one overwhelming vote for statehood out of Puerto Rico. So it's right. It, well, it but is when people don't vote, yeah. that's very American. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Americans generally don't vote until 2020 when they had more access to the vote. But um, so it's, it's a really contentious issue. Um, more Puerto Ricans, I believe, are starting to fall on the side of statehood, but some people are still for independence. Um, I think if they want independence, uh, I, I think that's perfectly fine, but they're going to want a reparation along with that, you know, bringing us back to that conversation of reparations because they're not going to be able with their financial situation right now, a broken power grid, yeah. all these issues, uh, constant natural disasters that hit the island, uh, overwhelming poverty, people who are uh, dependent upon uh, social services from the United States, people who are unemployed on the yeah. island, there's absolutely no way that it can just say, hey, okay, independence, we're free. Uh, and and survive, um, or yeah, else they're, in, they're, they're incapable. Haiti. They're incapable of independence at this point. I, and, I won't say they're incapable of independence. That sounds like I mean, no, no. Wait, there's the, the options are independent or dependent, and they're deeply dependent on the United States. And it's not, it's not a product of like I'm not sure why the U.S. would have to pay reparations to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has been hor- horribly mismanaged by its own corrupt local government, uh, and like if that, if. It, if it, you know what I mean? Like, it, like there, a lot of the, I mean, just think about the disaster response and how much um, of the resources were pilfered and stolen and not and not gotten to the people and the amount of aid that was sent by the United States that never got there. I mean, that was just an outrage, and that falls squarely on the local government in Puerto Rico. So, do we want to like go back into the history of Puerto Rico and why they would deserve a reparation? I mean, we we could definitely do that because you know. Yeah, course, make the case. Why why does all, why all should this, Puerto Rico get reparations from a country that has um, helped it, like who basically they com- they it? depend they depend on completely for their existence. Well, I, I'd say again, all of the the islands uh, surrounding Puerto Rico, with the exception of, you know, I mean, there there's certainly poverty, but many of them have existed uh, independent of uh, colonization. 
and have survived and done quite well. I mean, Haiti, of course, is, is one that's in a different situation, but Haiti was made to pay reparations to France. And that's why part of the reason why it's in the position that it's in. Of course, we know recently the president of Haiti was just, um, just shot, assassinated. assassinated overnight. Yeah, right. Um, so but he uh, allegedly was turning into an authoritarian figure. But when we look at Puerto Rico, first of all, um, when the United States got into Puerto Rico, they uh, had governors of the state of, or excuse me, the state uh, of Puerto Rico. Most of them didn't speak Spanish, didn't speak to the locals, and were making decisions uh, based on, you know, that were affecting the locals' future. Um, and if you want to talk real reparations, let's talk about the fact that, and I think you will agree with me, and I think uh, we'll say this, and then we'll take a quick break and get back uh, to our discussion, but one thing I know you'll understand as someone who I believe is, is uh, pro-life, one of the things that was done on the island of Puerto Rico is a third of the women on the island of Puerto Rico were forcibly sterilized in the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s. Forcibly sterilized. And when I say forcibly, of course, it was called La Operacion, and it wasn't it was most of the time women were given false information about what was happening. You know, they were told, okay, they were used for um, experimental uh, birth control. And if you know anything about birth control, you know, that can have many different effects on your body. Mm -hmm. And a lot of women were actually taken into surgery and they'd say, oh, we need to do an operation on you. It's going to make you better. And uh, they were tying these women's tubes, um, unbeknownst to them. And some of these women were young and still of childbearing age. Um, and this was basically a eugenic process that was supposed to you know, deal with poverty and overpopulation. Yeah. Um, now overpopulation in Puerto Rico, um, when you looked at the amount of people per square mile in Puerto Rico and compared it to the amount of people per square mile in say Manhattan, it wasn't even close. This was a eugenic process of a bunch of uh, brown women. And again, about a third of the island uh, of the women on the island were sterilized of childbearing age. Right. If that doesn't deserve a reparation. I don't know what, what does. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful. And that was the product of um, the work of Margaret Sanger and uh, Planned Parenthood, who founded Planned Parenthood well, and she, she her eugenics regime. That was, oh. that's where, that's, they saw Puerto Rico as a place to experiment. That's why a third of women were sterilized by all of this, because they said they didn't want population growth, especially in places where there was rampant poverty. And the effect of, of that work was to sterilize a third of women in Puerto Rico. It's awful that that occurred. Now, I, I, I think eugenics uh, goes beyond Margaret Sanger and what happened in Puerto yes, Rico. Yes, it does. To, and, and what happened in Puerto Rico. It's, it's interesting because here in the United States, we look at the eugenic processes um, and a lot of things that happened in terms of the racial and ethnic cleansing that happened in Nazi Germany. But a lot of those ideas that Hitler had came from the United States. He didn't, it's not like we got it from him. He got it from us. 
if you actually read what Hitler said, he loved uh, Westerns. He talked about the, the extermination of the Native Americans. He saw that as a model for what uh, he was doing in Germany. He saw the racial segregation and Jim Crow in the Jim Crow South as a model for what he kind of wanted to see um, in the empire that he was trying to build. So, and that also goes into the eugenic practices. A lot of those started in the United States. And it wasn't, you know, Margaret Sanger, although she was a proponent of eugenics. But when we talk about things happening in, you know, as late as they were, La Operacion, um, I think putting it all on, on Margaret Sanger or on one group, when, like I said, a third of the island was suffering this, is, I, I think, is very short-sighted. There were lots of people involved in that. This is the lots product. Lots of people who were this... okay with it. And a lots of people who overlooked it or, you know, who uh, put a check mark by it. And so to, to try to boil it down, I think is, is mistaken. Well, she was direct, directly involved in this, though. That's, that's why I brought her up. Because Margaret Sanger was trying to push birth control in the United States. And she decided sure. to use Puerto Rico. She and, and some others decide, and like there's like two or three others who were involved in this if memory serves, tried to push in um, Puerto Rico. This is where they wanted to experiment. And the effect was a third of all the women in Puerto Rico were sterilized. I mean, so Sa Sanger played a prominent role in that. And right, but the United States, to, to get to the original point is that the United States, if you want to talk about things that they owe uh, Puerto Rico for, being part and, you know, and, and part of the uh, sterilization of those women, I think, could add to the idea that they that they are owed a reparation. That's that's a horrible thing. If it happened in another country, we would say that uh, that country owes those people a a reparation. But again, independence or statehood, I think that's up to the Puerto Rican people to decide. Yeah. And uh, I think we need to you know figure that out, or they need to figure that out. And the the American people, um, we need to respect their wishes. They are Americans just like we are. And so if they want to be no longer be Americans, hey, that's fine. Um, but if they want to be Americans, they should have full citizenship rights, um, not just this partial citizenship that they have now. You don't need a passport to travel from Puerto Rico to the United right. States, but they can't, they don't have a vote in Congress. So no other state would, or no other place would really, uh, you know, that's as large as Puerto Rico would, would stand for that. Right. So I guess my, my two conclusions on the Puerto Rico question is one, um, do we do Americans want this? Do we do a majority of Americans want this? That's essential. You have, it's up to members of Congress representing the interests of Americans, whether or not they want to add Puerto Rico as a state. The other is side it? is, yes, it is like it's it's the, our system is the United States. And we as a country get to decide how many whether or not a state gets added. So that is a, we. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And then, and just, no, my second point is merely what do Puerto Ricans want? That's important too. And I think what ends up happening a lot is I think the media by and large glosses over the fact that there's, there is a meaningful, very divisive debate over the question of whether or not Puerto Rico becomes a state that, uh, that people rarely acknowledge. Obviously we're doing it here. Right. I, no, I, 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 we agree hundred percent on that. I, the only place where I have a disagreement with you 
is that some Americans don't get to decide to disenfranchise other Americans. We've done that before. And I think that that's problematic. We can't say just like they did in the Jim Crow South, we are more American than you, even though you are supposedly a citizen. Therefore, we get representation and you don't. Well, you're making an argument. That's problematic. You're making an argument that no U.S. territories should exist. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, there probably should be a decision. If you're going to be have the rights of citizenship, you need to have representation. I think that that's, that's fundamental to our system. So should the Virgin Islands be a state? Should Guam be a state? Should, I mean, should these, should these territories then become states? Uh, I think, well, Virgin Islands, I think one thing that could happen, one model that could happen is the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico could join together and be a state. You know, um, Virgin Islands, first of all, if you, if you know anything about the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, there's a lot of uh, migration between the Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. They don't need to be separate. Um, you know, in terms of, of Guam, I think that either, it, you know, one option, of course, is independence. They could be independent. These could become independent nations. But the idea, and I don't know that the people that the Guamese people are ask, actually asking uh, for independence or statehood, but I believe that citizens like the ones in Puerto Rico, they clearly want one or the other. That's one thing that I think is the, the idea now that they can stay a colony and not have the same rights and representation of other Americans, uh, I think is, is over. I think people want one or the other. And I think that's a decision for them to make. But I don't think people on the main 48 have the right to say, you can remain a second class citizen. We've done that before. That's my point is we've done that before where some citizens have made the decision that other citizens don't deserve representation. They don't deserve to be able to vote in presidential elections. They don't deserve you know, to be able to vote for a senator or a congressperson. Um, and I think in DC, the, the same thing. I think a lot of times we think of DC as this kinds of uh, you know, transitory place where people move in for four or eight years and then they move out. But there are people, uh, including some members of my family who have been there for generations, yeah. who lived east of the river and they serve representation. And that's why you, know, you see a lot of those okay. uh, license plates. So, and um, let's just take a quick- okay. No, well, let me just ask you one exit question because this is a big sure. one. So if, if you want people east of the Potomac to have representation, would you be okay with retroceding that section to Maryland? Um, no, uh, I don't think, again, I think that there's, uh, there are people there who um, see their identity as tied to the district. It has its own, you know, everything that that in it, just like, should we make West Virginia part of Virginia again? No, it has its own identity. Um, it has its own rep representatives or people that they want to represent them. Uh, and I think that they should be. Uh, and, and their population is, I believe, as large as, as Delaware, right? Or like, or close, you know, to, you know, uh, maybe not. To Delaware, but certainly to Rhode Island, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's it's close in in population. So uh, Puerto Rico, I, I think, is pretty close. I think there are about eight states that are smaller than Puerto Rico. So you have three plus million people who are under 
represented who are supposedly citizens of the United States. That's to me, that's not right. Three million people should not be uh, underrepresented. That's that's makes us what we don't want to be as as the United States, and that is a tiered democracy where some people are first class citizens and other people are second and third class citizens. You know, and and in, in fundamental ways. I, now, I I uh, I won't say that this is your motivation because I, I you know you can speak for your own motivations, but the retrocession question is a litmus test for a lot of Democrats whether or not they truly care about the principle of representation, or they're just looking to score two more senators in the United States Senate. And the answer for most Democrats is the latter. All they're trying to do is score two more Democrats in the United States Senate. So they want DC to become a state to that end. Because the retrocession question, which for those who don't know, is basically Maryland cedes this territory, the Eastern side of the Potomac to DC, that they did originally. And now the idea would be, okay, you want everyone to be represented, cede everything except for a very small federal district um, that continues to be Washington, D.C., see the rest of the territory where everybody lives back to Maryland and then give them all the members of Congress they would get from having that population growth. And then they would be represented by two United States senators in the state of Maryland. Um, you've got basically the opposition among Democrats to that is no, because we don't get two more reliable Democrat senators out of D.C. Uh, and so for that reason, I think there's a lot of people who are not making a principled argument here. It's, it's not about principles. It's about partisan advantage. No, I, I, I don't think that's true. I think D.C., number one, as I stated, just like many other states have their own, uh, there's, there's, it's, it has its own culture, um, has its own identity. And I think there is also something to the idea of our nation's capital being separate from, you know, this other state. You know, it should, it should just, the people just need representation, but it, you know, the nation's capital, there's a reason that they moved it and made it separate from Maryland because they didn't want Maryland, you know, necessarily um, for the nation's capital to be within another state. Right. Now having its own representation, I think it's fine. You know, those people deserve representation. Well, the founders didn't um, want that because it was a corrupting influence. They didn't want D.C. to have its own representation because then it could vote itself benefits. And it's not supposed to benefit the capital. It's supposed to be for the benefit of the nation. Well, one of the things, and this is why people, you know, if you've been around D.C. for a long time, that they've had something called home rule. Um, yes. And I'll explain that right after we take this quick break. So one of the things uh, about, you know, the District of Columbia, and that's been really frustrating for real citizens, real native Washingtonians. If you move there in the last 10 years, you are not a Washingtonian. But at any rate, uh, native Washingtonians, the issue is, even if your representation is bad, what we've seen in the district sometimes is the federal government just comes in and takes over. Or the federal government, for example, uh, just says, okay, city, you need to pay for inauguration, you know? which is unfair to the citizens of Washington, D.C. The federal government basically is acting in some ways tyrannical towards the citizens of Washington, D.C. And they don't have any representation in the federal government with the exception of uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton. And she doesn't have a vote. She just gets up and gets to talk and then sit back down. Um, so I think 
a lot of Washingtonians feel underrepresented. Um, they want uh, to be to be represented in Congress like all other citizens. You know, uh, people in places with small populations, Rhode Island, uh, Wyoming. You know, why doesn't Wyoming you know join with Idaho? <laughs> you know what I mean? To to build a bigger population because it has its own identity. It's its own state. You know, um, so I think for Washingtonians, they feel the the very same way. But wait, let me, can I, if I can, I want to do a callback to something you talked about at the top. You know, we were talking about how these districts are drawn, how these crazy districts are drawn, and how your community is is uh, is connected into the same district as Baltimore. The argument you're making just now is like, hey, like these are separate and distinct communities, but in your district, you've got separate and distinct communities that are drawn together, and yet they're all part of one district. Why shouldn't they be a part of separate and distinct districts then? Say again, I'm, I'm, I think I understood I guess the, the point, point I'm making, making is but... that like you're, you're saying, look, Washington, D.C. is a separate and distinct community from Maryland, right. and we should be treated as such in terms of its representation. My point was that the community you live in, you described it as you know middle to upper class uh, Maryland community. Um, my point is that that community is separate and distinct from West Baltimore, yet it's all a part of the same district. Uh, so I think I made, but didn't I make the point that we seem to vote together? <laughs> like we right. vote you for vote the for the same party, but that's- we have some of the same interests and we don't see ourselves necessarily as different. There are class differences. Um, and I, I think that those, you know, those exist. There are lots of communities where you know, there are class differences or, or the like, right. but generally we, uh, we see ourselves united in, in this particular so in light of that, district. I think that's a little different. In light of that, if why not say that D.C. and Maryland have the same interest then as well? Because D.C. and Maryland why? both vote for the same exact political party and would therefore be supportive of having Democrats uh, win in their statewide elections, in particular in the United States Senate. Um, why not say that if, if the basis for you being having the same or very similar interest to West Baltimore is that like, hey, we're basically voting for the same guys, why wouldn't it be the same in D.C. and Maryland? Well, again, I think people in D.C., again, I, I'm all about autonomy, number one. People in, in the 7th District don't want to necessarily split up. I've never heard any argument for the 7th District splitting up. Uh, I've never heard any Washingtonian say I want to join Maryland. Uh, or in many Marylanders say that they want Washington, D.C. to join Maryland in order to make it a, a larger uh, state, even though it would probably be advantageous in, in some ways for people like me who live in Maryland. I just think that it's uh, Washington, D.C. sees itself, uh, people there see themselves as a particular entity, and um, we should respect that kind of autonomy but also give them representation as citizens. I, I don't understand, what I don't understand is the argument that uh, certain citizens deserve full representation and others. I, I would like to see what happened. What would happen if we said Wyoming doesn't get senators anymore? So let's, let's even it out. So since all these Democratic, these Black largely, Democratic candidate or uh, citizens don't get representation, we're going to even it out by taking representation away from Wyoming. Uh, I don't think the citizens of Wyoming would take kindly to that because 
they would say, I'm a citizen, I deserve full citizenship rights. So again, I think the same thing for Puerto Rico. Yeah. I think the same thing for uh, for Washington, D.C. Uh, I don't know what the Guamese people want, but if they want that too, uh, they want to be citizens of the United States and we decide that we want them to, you know, they want to be citizens and we're going to continue to have them be citizens, then that's the way that should should go as well. Yeah, uh, I just I just think that anyone who makes your argument uh, should be open to retrocession to Maryland. That's all. I just think, like, what, okay. What about, what about Virginia? Or why don't we join, why doesn't D.C. join West Virginia? Would so D.C., okay? D.C., well, D.C. already retroceded Virginia's portion. So if, if anybody looks at a map of, of Washington, D.C., and you'll note that on the right side, it looks like it's a square. On the left side, it stops right at the Potomac River. That's why D.C. looks like it does. Um, it used to be that it was a square, actually. It was a gigantic square until uh, uh, D.C. retroceded to Virginia, the portion that was once D.C.'s. Now, I'm kind of of the opinion that if we're going to have a Washington, D.C. and it's going to be a coherent community, Northern Virginia should probably be a part of it. Now, what would that do? It would probably turn Virginia into a reliable Republican voting state, and then sure. you'd have a reliable Democrat voting state in D.C., and the two would cancel each other out um, If in that world where you create states out of both. Uh, but yeah, it, it's already, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's an interesting history is Maryland has not taken that land back and D.C. has not given it. But I just think that if the point is, if you want to have representation and, I, and I've made the point enough, so I won't I won't repeat it again. But if you want to have representation and you're in the eastern part of D.C., um, that that could be available to you if that land was actually retroceded to Maryland and you would have your own member of Congress. You'd be represented by senators. You would get to vote in all those elections and you'd be fully represented in the United States Congress. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear your point. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, my point is, uh, you know, I've already, I've already made my point in terms of uh, representation and, you know, cer certain things in terms of uh, culture and, and why we have certain states that are certain states. If we started seeding, you know, some uh, land, if, if you started making, you know, part of Indiana, uh, part of Illinois, <laughs> people in Indiana would have an issue with that, as would people in Illinois. For some reason, we just want to give away parts of the district uh, to other states. Uh, yes, there were things that were done in the past, but I think, again, Washington, D.C. is Washington, D.C., and it should uh, remain Washington, D.C., but I also believe that Washington, D.C. Uh, residents and citizens uh, not people who are transient, who are going to go back to Wyoming in a couple of years. I don't know why I'm picking on Wyoming. Shout out to <laughs> Wyoming. You know, uh, I have, no, wait, doesn't, doesn't Neil live in Wyoming? At times, uh, they say. Yeah. It's, it's an out. urban legend, though. We don't know for sure. <laughs> right. Well, if you know, shout out to him and his neighbors. Um, nothing, nothing against Wyoming, but uh, I'm trying to pick another state, uh, Mississippi. It, you know, I, I believe that Mississippians are Mississippians and they deserve, you know, to stay Mississippians and we right don't on. necessarily need to change that. I just think that every every uh, citizen of the United States should have the right to vote, not be determined by others and it not, us not have a tiered system. Got I do want to ask you about what something that I've read recently that was so uh, interesting with the pandemic. 
a lot of places, and I know you're a pro-life guy. Um, and you know, my, my view on it is pretty nuanced at this point in my life. Um, my, my view essentially, and some people may view it as a cop-out and I understand why, why they may view it that way. But my view is essentially that I am pro-life for myself and pro-choice for everyone else. And again, that's, that's a privileged position because I'm married, I'm middle-class, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, if I have another child, you know, which I'm trying to prevent, but if I have another child, um, although I thought about adopting, but it, but my wife's not yeah. having, she will not, I couldn't even talk her into it if I wanted to, but if I have another child, it will be, um, you know, it, it won't break my family. We'll, you know, we won't, we'll, none of our kids will miss meals and all that. That's a privileged right, position right. to be in. And I recognize my own privilege, but right now after the pandemic, um, a lot of the abortion services moved out of, uh, facilities with medical professionals and actually moved online. And that's also a way of circumventing a lot of the heartbeat rules uh, that a lot of states have passed is that people are actually um, selling or distributing um, pills and other things that will terminate a pregnancy mm -hmm. online. It's legal. And it's a way of circumventing some of these states, uh, these particular state rules. Um, I have my concerns about it. Um, even as someone who, in most cases, supports whatever women want. Um, I have my concerns about a medical procedure being done at home outside of the uh, presence of a medical professional. And so that really concerns me. And I, I, you know, we haven't heard about any women, you know, getting complications or dying or anything like that. Right. But that, you know, one of the things, the arguments that I've always made for the pro-choice movement is that, you know, the dangers of back alley abortions, we're not going to stop them. Almost like, you know, you can make the argument about drugs. We're not going to stop people from doing it, but we can make it safer when they do it. And so mm -hmm. the, the fear that I have now is with this stuff moving online because of these restrictive rules that it gets more dangerous because people are not um, in the presence of medical professionals. So I wanted to get your reaction to that. So we let me have a discussion about it. OK, so let me just base, drill down what it is. This is a pill that people can take in order to induce an abortion up to, I believe, 11 weeks of development. Mm -hmm. That's a, And yeah. so. And then they can get it, they can they can order it, and people have, and they basically take the pill, it aborts their child, and then that's it. And they can, you know, and the body, because of the young age of the child, can clear it, you know, without surgical intervention. Um, you know, I I I think that first of all, the the state of abortion questions in the United States is just awful. Like I I first, you know, I know the Supreme Court is taking on some of these cases uh, and looking at uh, permissible restrictions in states around the country. 
And um, a lot is often said about, oh my gosh, we don't want to, you know, what's going to happen to Roe v. Wade? And if Roe v. Wade gets completely overturned, and it's already been chipped at, chipped away at pretty substantially, you know, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in many cases have, have changed a lot of the way the Supreme Court views Roe v. Wade. But there's this idea that all of a sudden abortions will be illegal nationwide if Roe v. Wade gets overturned and it's going to become back alley abortions everywhere. I don't think that's true um, for a number of reasons. One is what would really happen is if Roe v. Wade got overturned is that each it would be up to each state to set their laws. It wouldn't be um, a fed, nationwide ban on abortion, um, despite the fact that there are pro-life people who would love to see that as the outcome. The other is, I think that you've basically described a world where now there is that kind of that, like the old school sort of back alley using a hanger, disgusting abortion arrangements, by and large, probably won't be the status quo um, because of the readily available supply of medication or pills. I hate to call it medication because of what it does, but pills that induce abortions. It seems to me that that's the world that it'll become. It won't become like, you know, unsanitary equipment being used to induce abortions and and potentially kill women in back alleys. Um, I think that that is, I think that that depiction is used typically as a technique to safeguard abortion access nationwide. It's it's often rolled out as a way to say, don't get rid of abortions, or else we're going to have all this these basically human rights violations going on, uh, not just not to the baby, which is obviously not relevant to people who are uh, aggressively pro-abortion, but specifically to the mother. Um, and I, I guess, I don't know if I've ac- adequately summarized my views or if I've given you a good impression, but I like, you know, I, I think a lot more respect needs to be paid for life in the United States. You know, we, we respect, we respect animal life more than we do human life in the United States. Like we, we have an entire endangered that. We have an Endangered Species Act that um, will fine and imprison you if you handle a sea turtle egg. Yet uh, we we look we have no problem with um, aborting unborn children, and um, I just think that we need to reorient our priorities because human life is worth protecting. So. Um... <clears throat> Um, I'm glad to see that you joined like Black Lives Matter just there, um, because that's an argument that um, a lot of activists make in terms of uh, the value of, of human life and the value of Black lives in particular. Um, when it comes to um, what we value, if you go back to uh, 2005 and, and Katrina and the way that dogs and stray dogs were, were rescued and, and put onto air conditioned buses and black people largely were walking across the you know bridges and met with guns um, and they were just looking for food and water and pampers and and baby formula um, I think that you are underestimating while you say okay back alley abortions and hangers you're probably correct that it, it may not be like that. But what you will get instead of, you know, some of these legitimate pills that people are getting is you'll get, you know, someone from Russia or something like that selling a pill with fentanyl in it or something that can really harm somebody thinking it's an abortion pill. Um, things that people get from shady places on the internet or even shady places on the street that can be just as harmful as a, a hanger. So, um, 
I think, you know, it will turn a little more high tech, um, but it could still be very dangerous for, for women's lives. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I think, I'm glad that you're having a genuine discussion where we talk about, um, you know, abortion and, you know, what the rights of people are. There were so many disingenuous discussions that happened, say, a year ago about, like, killing babies outside of the womb and all of that kind of stuff. Some of that stuff, and they were saying it was happening in hospitals with doctors. It's, it was absolutely ridiculous and absurd. I mean, people were taking things out of context that were said by, for example, by Ralph Northam. You, you know, you're, you're in Virginia, um, you know, where he was talking about, you know, where um, a, a child that was not viable, that was not going to survive, he was talking about how you keep the child comfortable so you can allow for the families to actually um, spend some time with their child before their child passes, uh, which is inevitable, and they can keep the child alive. And it was funny, right after that, con that controversy happened, I recall, you know, I had a, a person who hit me up on Facebook as we were all, you know, kind of having a social media discussion about it. Mm -hmm. And a guy, black guy, and this was, you know, after the whole Ralph Northam uh, blackface incident and all of that. He said, you know, I'm so grateful to Dr. Northam because I got to spend a whole week with my child, my wife and I, you know, um, before our child passed. And, you know, he had had a particular a one-on-one -on -one experience with, with Ralph Northam and what Ralph Northam was talking about. So these political opportunists started stepping in and having this disingenuous conversation uh, about that and talking about even late-term abortions, which, you know, most people don't support, you know, except for a very small fringe group of people. So, so can, and, I, can, can I inject a, a genuine rebuttal, not a disingenuous one at all? about what okay, Ralph Northam we'll, said. We'll see. <laughs> okay, but go ahead. What Northam was talking about was performing a third trimester abortion on a deformed child. A so, not viable, one that's not going to survive. So the plan the plan was to, but they were still, they were using abortion techniques, inducing an abortion on a third trimester baby. And then when the baby is born, then to allow what's left of the living baby to die. Sure. And we, you know, we talk about this, you know, in the, in the context of, of like, especially older people, when people are at their, at de their deathbed and the extent to which you artificially perpetuate their life. And, and those are, those are obviously big and deep questions. You but the point is birth. It's not an abortion. You induce birth and then you keep that fetus or that, you know, I, I guess by, by the third tri trimester, it's probably a baby keep it comfortable, my understanding, was his quote, uh, before, usually so the, the family can get to know the child or, or can say their goodbyes. Because once a woman has been carrying a child, and you know this, for and, and a family, I should say, men who aren't carrying the child, um, when they are carrying a child, there is a bond built. You know, when you see that, that, belly start to get bigger and you, yeah. you know, there, there's a bond built. And then 
when you realize that child's not going to have a future and that child's not going to be viable. So we're not talking about, you know, just the child that's going to be disabled. We're talking about a child that's going to die, you know? Um, and so it's not inducing an abortion. It's inducing birth, keeping the child comfortable. He and then so the family can say their goodbyes and then the child dies. Right. But he was asked by WTOP, the radio station in question, mm -hmm. about what would happen if there was a failed abortion and then the child was born anyway. And that's what he said, would leave the would leave the child and they would, you know, and, and, and exactly as you just explained it. Um, but it was the product of a failed abortion. Um, there have been stories, real stories of people who um, have survived abortion in the United States. And then when they were born, I just heard a woman recently say that when she was born, the only one person in the room was interested in saving her. And it was a nurse who grabbed her and like ran out of the room. It's just an unbelievable story. She's an adult woman now. She just testified before Congress recently about this. And these are real stories. I, I just think that it's, it's, it's worth thinking about. Like life is complicated for sure. And uh, people, people have to face really difficult decisions. I get that. But I just think that the, the Northern comments in particular hit people as a sort of callous indifference to life. You see a living human being, no matter what shape they're in, deformities or otherwise, perishing on a table who's just born. It should be like a slap in the face that you're like, oh my gosh, like we, like we have to remember this is human life we're talking about and it's worth protecting uh, as, as much as you can humanly do. Right, and, and but I think this is where context is important. My understanding of his comments is that, like I said, that child is not savable. Like that child is going to die. So again, you keep the child alive as long as possible so that the family can say their goodbyes. Um, and like I said, when this guy told me that, I mean, I was almost moved to tears reading his comments about how grateful he was to have that week. I'm getting emotional right now, you know, um, for to have, you know, as a father, to think about, you know, not having your child and that you could only have that short amount of time with your child. And he was able to have that week and he was so grateful to the, uh, to the people around for keeping his child alive so that he could say his goodbyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's what Ralph Northam was saying, but even if you disagree, and I and I, I understand from your position where you stand, when people use that as a political football, it was disgusting to me. They weren't talking about life the way you are and the way I am. It, it seemed like it was another thing to tweet about. And when I, you know, when I read that guy's, comment it wasn't he wasn't talking about politics he was really talking about life he was really talking about family you know and we love to talk about politics we talk even about puerto rico which affects people's lives of course you know a lot of that was politics you know what i mean and neither one of us lives in puerto rico so you know it's just kind of political stuff and we can smile and joke but you know what makes this whole discussion so difficult, you know, is, and, and, and of course, fundamental to all of these discussions about abortion. Yeah. Is, you know, 
when does when does life begin? You For know sure. what I mean? Yes. That's fundamental to the discussion. And I don't think that that was what Ralph Northam was necessarily talking about. He was saying, this is a situation where a child is going to is going to die. And um, you have to induce uh, a birth because at a certain point, you've got a baby, you know, after 21 weeks, that's pretty much a baby. It's not a fetus any longer. It's viable. It can, it can possibly. Where did you you get that number from just now? 21 weeks. uh, I think that's what, you know, people, that's when it's considered um, viable, a viable, it it could possibly not definitely, but possibly live outside of the womb without assistance. I'm impressed Um, because you said 21 weeks. Now, the reason why it, it caught me is because uh, in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court said 26 weeks is viability. And we just saw, it's interesting. I don't know if you, did you see this story? Uh, a month ago, June 5th, there was the news that the, that the earliest born preemie just survived to see its first birthday. Uh, and that earliest born preemie was 21 and a half weeks. That's the earliest that uh, we've ever recorded a child being born and then surviving outside of the mother's womb and is now a healthy one-year-old baby boy. Uh, and it's like, it's the kind of thing that like should, I think, shake us out of our hubris. Like the idea that we can just like, you know, the, the idea that they were, they set some sort of defined standard up oh, viability is 26 weeks when it's like, my God, like there's just so much we don't know even about our own planet, about, about humans, about, there's just so many things we don't know. Forget the rest of the universe. Um, the idea that the Supreme Court could come along and be like, look, after 26 weeks, then we can talk about regulating. But before that, boy, there's a constitutional right to an abortion that, that shouldn't be touched. It's just hubris. And I, and I think that the 21-week example is a really good example of where um, you know, we have to acknowledge like, like life, life is a miracle. And also science is a miracle. Look at what they can do. They can keep a, a, a baby that only developed 21, year, 21 weeks in utero alive that's impressive. That's such an amazing story. Yeah. So just, uh, you know, for, you know, anyone's edification, doctors now consider 22 weeks, the earliest gestational age when a baby is viable. Mm-hmm. Um, and abortions after 21 weeks, that's, you know, of all abortions, it's, it's about 1.3%. And when it, you're talking more than 24 weeks, that's less than 1%. And a lot, and, in I believe all of those cases, because late-term abortion is is illegal um, in just about all the country. Yeah, and most uh, most not, Americans and most Americans don't. Most want Americans, it. even if you support, you know, if you're pro-choice. Yeah. Um, most I don't know people who support it unless there's an issue where it's affecting the health of the mother, or uh, it's a non-viable pregnancy. You know, um, and a and a woman is literally, you know, carrying around a, a baby that's going to die. You know, um, but again, so uh, you know, it it is, and even a child born at twenty two weeks is probably going to need significant assistance in the yes. NICU. Yes. In order to survive, like it's not going to, you know be birthed naturally and you can just hand it off to the father and be like, Oh, look at this baby. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly like, right. It is going to need 
a whole lot of assistance to survive because if it's just born on its own, you know, it, it's yeah. probably not going to make it. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm pro medicine. I'm pro vaccine. I'm pro all of that. So if a child can survive, let's make it survive. Let's use everything that we possibly have in order to help that child survive. Um, and, you know, I'm pro adoption. You know, if we can, you know, like I said, I, I, my wife and I, we, we still discuss adoption uh, as an option. Right. Um, you know, but one thing I, we have to say, and I have to say this, right, you know, because it, again, I might get emotional again because this gets me emotional. But one thing about adoption um, is, you know, there's a, there's a pricing structure to adoption. And a lot of that pricing structure is based upon age and race. And so a lot of, you know, black women and black families don't necessarily look to adoption because they're like, my kid's going to sit in the system and probably not get adopted. You know what I mean? And so when you look at it, it it's actually white infants are the most expensive and black children particularly older black children but black children with two black parents um are generally much cheaper to adopt if you ever watched and and again granted this was in washington dc but i believe it was fox 5 local they used to have something called wednesday's child um mm -hmm. and some people had issues with it because they were like it was like selling a child you know but it was promoting these children that needed to get adopted. And I thought it actually was, was good and functional. And, you know, it, it showed these beautiful children that people can look at and say, hey, that's my kid. You know, um, it's, it's interesting if you, sorry, it, it's interesting if you, uh, one of my favorite uh, MMA fighters, a guy named Mike Chandler. Um, you know, if you're into MMA, you know, Mike Chandler, um, and Mike Chandler adopted a young boy named Hap, you know, who is a young black boy. Mike mm -hmm. Chandler's a white guy. And one of the things he said, he was like, he was looking at these kids and he just saw Hap and he, he broke into tears and like, that's my son, you know? And so I, I, I didn't necessarily have a problem with that, but you noticed it was hard to watch week after week. It was just all black kids. Like, I don't, I don't think there was ever a white kid. It was all black kids. I don't remember an Asian kid. I don't remember anything. It was always black kids. And so I think a lot of African-American people, and until America gets to a point where people are willing to adopt African-American children, you know, um, which doesn't happen often. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, I hear... A lot of people on the right come to me and, and honestly, I've had real good conversations. Like I, you know, I always say that there's the people who try to score political points right. and there are people who, who genuinely come to you in good faith. And I had some of them where people have been like, you know, and tried to talk to me about the racial element of, of abortion. And my yeah. thing is until people start adopting those black kids, you know, black families and non-black families, 
until people start seeing those kids as equal and not going for white and Asian kids or kids overseas, when they've got kids down the street from them, not going to Eastern Europe, not going to Asia and not going and waiting and trying to find a white infant, when they're willing to raise and adopt black children, black people are going to turn to other means to deal with you know, um, pregnancies that they're not prepared for. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, more readily available adoption for the babies that black mothers have who don't have any other options. Um, that makes sense. I, you know, and obviously the one thing, and you mentioned it, the one thing I'm thinking as you were saying all that is, well, what we need is more black families who are in a position to adopt black children. For sure. Um, For sure. That would be, that would be a game changer because that's really what that, that is about. I mean, it's, you've got, um, you've got white families who are adopting children who look like them, who they're more culturally in touch with. They think not that the child has a culture than the one to, unless they're, unless they're older um, mm-hmm. than the one that they, they get from the, the family, but it makes sense. You know, it's like people are often attracted to people of the same racial composition typically um, or their children. You know, they think that they can be most responsible raising someone who looks like them. So they they have um, some commonalities there. Um, you know, maybe they Why? can't have, maybe they aren't, Maybe they can't have a child of their own. Maybe they're biologically incapable, but they like they envision having that child, uh, you know, th- via that adoption. I haven't done it, so I haven't gone through that that mental process of what that would be like. Um, but for but, all the people that say I don't see race, you know yeah. how, how many people say I don't care if you're black or yellow or purple, but until I adopt a child or pick a partner, <laughs> you know what I mean. So you do see race. Just yeah, say that. I don't think you know, any. I, I mean, I like I don't know if anybody means it like that far i think what they mean anybody who says that the argument they're trying to make is that right right but anybody who says that hold tight the the, the, anyone who says that the argument they're really trying to make is that i don't judge someone negatively because they're a different race than me like and in other words i assess them on the merits and so race is not a factor in that judgment um but people like romantic partnerships i mean there's all sorts of examples where people you know they are mostly attracted to people who are of a similar racial background to them. I think typically, um, although that's changing, that's definitely changing. There's a lot more, um, interracial relationships clearly. Uh, but it's, I don't judge anyone negatively. Who's like, you know, if you're black, if you're attracted to black women, like, I don't, I'm like, what? That's so bigoted. Like, like why, why in the world would I think that that's, that's insane. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's fine. Um, I think one of the things we need to acknowledge in many cases, I just like to acknowledge the fact that you're not colorblind. That's that's BS. There's no such thing as being colorblind. You all see race and you do, even if it's into your, uh, you know, your attraction or yeah. your uh, who you want to raise as a child. It also goes into where you're, you're willing to live, um, you know, where you're willing to send that kid to school. You know what I mean? I talk to a lot of my white friends who are like, I don't see color. And I'm like, well, why don't you send your kid to Banneker? It's a high performing black school, you know, largely black school. Will you send mm-hmm. your white kid to that school that has black teachers and black students? And they're like, well, you know, and then all of a you sudden. You got me. Yeah, you got me. <laughs> uh, I actually do see race, you know. And they're and, like, and, you're right, I'm a racist. I'm and you're... you are putting certain values. Yeah. I think that Number one, a lot of, you know, uh, when you talk about black people who are attracted to other black people. Sure. 
some of that is, you know, again, we're socialized a certain way. We're socialized around certain people. But a lot of that is just out of group solidarity. I can't say I never found white women attractive. I just found black women, you know, attractive um, because we had certain shared experiences and, sure, and, sure. and a lot of it was out of our solidarity and wanting to raise black kids. So yeah, a lot of I that, think, a lot of that plays a role. It's like, how much do you feel like you have in common? That, that makes sense. Yeah. But I, you know, I also, you know, um, I, I don't, I think there is a value judgment that we are putting on race that I would just like for people to acknowledge, just acknowledge it. That's the first step. Don't hit me with the I'm colorblind thing, because that's not true. Well, the point, the point to colorblindness and its value, and I know you and I are now running quickly out of time, but the color, the point to colorblindness and its value is that the system itself should be a colorblind meritocracy. That is, that is, that is an ideal for sure. Now, does it mean that individuals don't see other people and go, oh, I have no idea what race that person is? No, of course not. Like that's, like that person doesn't exist un- un- unless they're literally blind and like, like there's and they don't talk to the other person. Like, I mean, there's, you know, right. Is that, I just, that's but, just like a fictional human being. But yeah, but, but Vince, let me just say this and, and we'll wrap up. Cause I want to get the last word. Uh, <laughs> the, the one thing I'll say is this, when it comes to a colorblind meritocracy, yes, would be the would be uh, you know beautiful it would be utopian um so would a crime free republic but guess what that's not where we live so we have police you know what i mean so again even though we would like to be colorblind let's not pretend that we live in a colorblind meritocracy when we don't let's actually put things in place that make things more equal rather than just saying, oh, we want to be this, so we are this, and we're not this. I agree, so, actually. I agree with you. We're not in a colorblind meritocracy, and we should be. That's my point. It's like the end goal should yeah, be I agree. a colorblind meritocracy. I think you and I have very different views on this subject, for sure. And I'm, I'm very much an equality of opportunity guy. I think equality of outcome is the road to tyranny. And um, you know, I, and uh, you and I are going to have to have a lot more conversations. That's really where, where I, right. uh, I land on this. And one thing that we, we do agree on is that people need to tune in to Vince and Jason Save the Nation more often. They need to subscribe. They need to watch us on YouTube, on Facebook, watch, and anywhere where they can get a podcast, like, subscribe, tell us what you think in the comments. I'm not going to read them, but Vince will, <laughs> and much respect to all of you. Uh, thank you for sitting here through a really, really deep conversation where we're talking about all kinds of things from politics to life to race. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing we're going to get into every week in an attempt to save the nation. You have to have difficult conversations. Much respect to all of you. Vince, you know, I love you, brother. We're out of here. Uh, likewise. God bless.